I like to sit in the front and listen to everybody sing. And it does good to my soul. That is why Colossians 3 commands us to sing to one another. And really, at the church level and corporate worship level, we should allow the the voices of the people of God to be the primary instrumentation. Uh, That is God's design and leading us in singing out together. So I always appreciate your ability to do that. Let's turn in our Bibles once again to Romans 3. And this morning, we are going to finish a major section in the book of Romans. It was a section in this letter that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And the theme being the righteous wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven against all sin, us as sinners. And that section ran from chapter 118, and it'll run all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, where we'll land this morning. Our text primarily will be verses 9 through 20. But this was an important section. You remember in the beginning, chapter 1, and the first 15 verses are just introductions. So if you're thinking as we're studying through Romans and you're reading through Romans, those first 15 verses are really introduction. Paul's desire to get to them to preach the gospel. Then verses 16 and 17 set really the themes of the entire book. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. By the way, that is our, those are our two memory verses as a church right now. And there'll be more to come out of each chapter, but those are the core ones you really should learn from chapter 1. It set the whole theme. But instead of going right then, Paul, instead of going right in verse 18 to expounding the gospel, what does he do? In verse 18, he begins talking not about the good news, but the bad news of man. The bad news of our sin that makes the gospel necessary. And he hammers away at humanity in a very non-flattering way, a very politically incorrect way, being very honest with every human being that you have a massive problem and it is sin. And in of yourself, there is no remedy to it or for it. So he spends this entire section until chapter 3, verse 21, which we'll jump into next week, where he begins expounding on the mercies of God. Remember, chapter 12, verse 1, we, we flash forwarded there, present your body as a living sacrifice to God because of his mercies, the mercies of God to you. That will begin in chapter 3, verse 21, and run all the way through till chapter 12. And we just get the privilege of just unfolding these mercies, but not yet. First, we need to lay the foundation and tell everybody what they need to hear about themselves. You are by nature not good. You are by nature very bad. As a matter of fact, you are by nature far worse than you ever thought you were. And you're not alone. 
You're in the company of every other human being that has lived since the fall of Adam and Eve. Let's read now in chapter 3, verse 9, the text for this morning, verses 9 through 20. I'll pause and I'll pray as we always do to ask God to help us now with his word and then we'll jump in. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then are we Jews or just perhaps we? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pause now and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we know this is bad news for us all by nature and our sinfulness, and yet we're going to view it through the lens of the gospel that we have heard and received and believed. And so you can turn this bad news into blessing for our souls, edification to us, helpfulness to us, encouragement. And so I pray that you would do that even as we expound on our natural sinfulness and our depravity. It would cause us to be looking up to Jesus, the only one exempt from this entire passage. And the one we're looking to now this morning, we ask this all for the glory of your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's look at verse 9. A few weeks ago when we landed here, this is where we landed. We talked about it. Paul's drawing some conclusions. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Or perhaps just we, because the underlying word is not Jews, could be saying, are we Jews still in the same thing that he was dealing with, right, in chapter 2? Because in chapter 1, he was condemning the nations generally. Chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he's dealing with the Jews who are saying, wait a minute, we have the law, we're part of God's people, therefore this doesn't apply to us. And he's saying, no, you're under sin as well. So he's saying, what are we any Jew, are we Jews any better off? Or he could be referring to himself and the Romans. Are we any better off? Either way, it doesn't really matter because the conclusion's the same, right? No, not at all. Nobody's at an advantage. No one's better off. For we have already charged in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and in the first eight verses of chapter 3, we've charged already that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's an interesting statement. An interesting phrase that should draw us in. Under sin, what does that even mean? 
It's obviously greatly problematic, but what does it really mean to be under sin? That might be a statement that we would just generally in our daily reading read it, and maybe in our minds we're thinking we know what that means, but have we ever just paused to think about what it means to be under sin? Because we all were under sin before Christ, and if you're not in Christ now, you are under sin, and the whole world has been under sin. So what does it mean to be under sin? That word under in this context has the nuance of being under the control of something, under the dominion of something, under the ruling influence of something. And in this case, it is we who are under the control of sin. What Paul will unpack even further as he already has done and then will continue to do is that that means that we have within us the presence of sin. Friends, we sin because we are sinners. It isn't the other way around. We sin because within us we have the principle of sin. And before you are a Christian, it is the dominating influence of your life, no matter how outwardly moral and good your life looked. Romans, think Romans chapter 2 in that beginning part. The people that are judging the world because of their outward sins. And even though Paul says, you're doing the very same things. No matter how outwardly moral you looked, at the core of your being, you were under sin's power. It was the dominating influence of your life. It's what directed your day-to-day experience and decision-making processes. This principle within you that is really a power within you that exerts influence upon your heart and mind leading you into sin is the principle of sin within you. It's because you are, by nature, depraved. It's the presence of sin within us. And that heart of sin, previous now to being a Christian, is the heart, back in chapter 1, verse 21, that says... I know God, but I don't want God because, see, I want my sin, so I'm going to take what I know about God and I'm going to suppress it deep down in my unrighteousness so I can do what I want. It is what Paul refers to in chapter 5 and verse 10 as, listen, we were enemies of God. In other words, when it comes to being under sin, what it means is your relationship to God, it's not like you're just indifferent to him. Your very heart, the sinfulness of your heart is actually at enmity against God. You're an enemy of his. Paul says about this in chapter 6, verse 17, that you were when you were under sin, you were slaves of sin. You know what's interesting about being a slave? By definition, a slave is not free. Sometimes I have people ask me the the question, biblical theological question, I hear debates about it. Do I have free will? I don't know. You tell me. If you're a slave of sin, 
and you're under the controlling influence of sin, you obey it, are you free? Chapter 8, verse 7 through 9, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Talking about this distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Now, when Paul's talking here in chapter 8 and verses you know, 5 and 6 and 7 and such of the flesh, he's talking about not just your body. He, he's talking about that controlling influence of sin within a person. And he makes an interesting statement down in verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if... If now, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in other words, there's only two categories of people, those in the sinful flesh and under sin, and those now in the Spirit or have the Spirit. Two categories of people, you're either or. Well, the interesting thing is, if you're not under, or if you're not, don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ, you're completely flesh, and he says... Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For listen to this. This is your condition when you're born into this world. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? It's hostile to God. There it is again. It's not like it's just indifferent to God. It's hostile to him. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he says, it cannot. When you are under sin, you are enable, uh, incapable, do not have the ability to please God, submit to God's law, not in the way he would require. Because your very heart is under sin. It's controlling, directing influence. And therefore, because of that, to be under sin means you're under sin's penalty. Because as Paul will say very clearly, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death, physical, spiritual, and we're all under sin. We're sinners by our very nature. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this, by nature now, we were By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. What invokes the wrath of God? Why is it being revealed? Against what? From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul says that every one of us, every one of us sitting in this room, everyone at the Ephesian church, he himself, by our very natures, when you're born into this world, are born in this condition. Your very nature invokes the, the wrath of God. That is not a very positive assessment of human beings, is it? And quite frankly, I recognize that Paul's message to human beings today would not fly even in some churches. Do you know if Paul were alive today, some churches would not invite him to speak? Because as soon as he started saying things like this, people would get up and walk away. And they just can't have that because the goal, right? The goal is to get as many people there as you can. 
But this is the cold, hard truth about our condition. This is the biblical truth about who we were. Now, good news, Christian. Let me just pause here for a moment. I want to make it very clear to everyone in this room who right now, your faith is in Jesus. And you know it. And you're a Christian and you're saved. I want you to know you're no longer under sin. You do know that. You have been rescued out of that terrible, tragic condition. Matter of fact, we read it together this morning, didn't we? What he'll get to in chapter 5, verse 1, when we start unpacking the mercies of God. How does he put that? He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God now. That's the good news. If you're in Christ, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So now, someone's in Christ. They're no longer under sin's power and penalty. They're actually under grace, which is a infinitely better place to be, right? You're under grace now, so I just need to throw that at you, and that's why Paul will begin this this whole letter, and he says, uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, right, called to be saints, now grace to you and peace are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't don't, Don't hear this as saying, I'm still in that position, unless you are. Now, if you are still in that position, hear it that way. If you have not repented and trusted in Christ and are not trusting in Christ, that's your position. That's why we got to put out the bad news so that you'll embrace this good news about Jesus Christ. But for the rest of you who know Christ, you are no longer under this terrible condition because the gospel really, what the good news is and what we'll see as we unfold this, the good news answers the dilemma of sin. It's presence, it's power, it's penalty, and we'll see in these chapters of Romans how it unfolds all of that to where we all just end up in glory, glorified, free from sin, and all its effects forever and ever and ever. Romans 8, okay? It answers the problem of sin. Now, here's what he does. Look at verse 10. So he makes this charge in verse 9, back in chapter 3 now of Romans. He makes that charge in verse 9. Everyone is under sin, Jews and Greeks, and you're either one of those. Verse 10 now, he says, as it is written. Very important little statement in your Bibles. Whenever you come across that in the New Testament, it means the author is about to quote from the Bible. In other words, what he's about to say is what God says on this topic. So if we think about If we think about Romans 1 through 3 as a courtroom scene and we're all being charged with sin and he's leveling the evidence, he's now going to call into the courtroom the star witness. And it is God himself. And what he does, beginning the second half of verse 10 of chapter 3 and running down through verse 18, he quotes from Old Testament passages. Of course, they weren't Old Testament to him. It was just the Bible to him then. But this is when the New Testament was being written. So he's quoting these Old Testament passages. Most of them come from the Psalms. One or two of them come from Isaiah. And what is he saying? He's saying, this isn't me telling you, essentially, that all are under sin. This is what God has always been saying. 
This is what's been the consistent teaching of our scriptures, says Paul, since they were written, that God is charging everyone of being under sin. And he quotes from scripture. The first one, well, this is how it's broken up, and then I'm gonna, I'll show you how this works out. In verses 10 through 12, it's general statements of the universality of sin. Just to back up what he's saying, all are under sin. Okay, chapter 10, or verses 10 through 12, just general statements that back that up of what God has said about human beings. However, then in verses 13 and 14, he, and we'll look at this, he talks about, he's essentially saying this, if you want more evidence of this, just listen to people talk. Because words demonstrate the sinfulness of man. And then what he does in verses 15 uh, through uh, 16 or uh, 17, rather, verses 15 to 17, he says, you want more evidence? Look at the way they live. Look at the results of how humanity lives, how they treat one another, and you will see this evidence of sin. And then he gives a summarization in verse 18. So let's just break that up. Let's look at the first uh, portion of this, this universal sin Verses uh, 10 and uh, 12, through 12. And these come from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And I want to put up Psalm 14 because I want you to see this in the original passage that he's quoting from. Psalm 14 says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. That's really Romans 1 people. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now listen to this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. And they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And here's an interesting little factoid. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical word for word. So when God in his providence is planning the hymn book of the people of God, he wants you not once but twice to be singing through this concept of the sinfulness of man. There is one theme that is reiterated from cover to cover in the Bible, and it is a sinfulness of man. Paul could have pulled from any number of passages to demonstrate this, but he chose one of these core passages to speak of how God looks down from heaven. In other words, this is God's assessment, isn't it? This is God looking down. What do I see among human beings? What do I find among human beings? Anyone doing good? Anyone who's righteous? Anyone who's seeking after me? Anyone who understands? No. And notice in Romans 3, just the way he structures that, there's none that he finds that are like that. And then he emphasizes it in chapter, verses 10 and 12. Not even one, because somebody's going to object to this. Paul, you're talking about six billion people on this planet. And you mean there is not one who's doing good, according to, according to God's standard? There's not one who's right? And he's like, not even one. You see? By nature, no one is righteous, friends. By nature, no one understands, that is, has a spiritual comprehension of God and themselves and this world. By nature, no one seeks God. As a matter of fact, we already saw in Romans 1, they all 
They all suppress the truth they know about him. By nature, all have turned aside from God, and they've become worthless, which is a powerful statement. I mean, it's, it almost sounds wrong to say that the people have become worthless. What does he mean? He means this, because they've turned aside from God, they're not doing what God has created them to do, which is live for his glory and reflect his image and exercise his dominion in the world and love him and love one another. And no one's doing that. They've all turned aside from their original intent and therefore they have become useless to God. By nature, no one does good because even our, our good is tainted with bad. Even the good that the natural world does is not motivated by or fueled by the love of God and the love of one's neighbor, not a pure, true love. Israel was told that even their righteous deeds are like filthy rags, all falling short of the glorious standard of God. This is clearly a declaration of the universality of sin. It's clearly what Paul is saying is nothing new. This is what God has always been saying. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this universality of sin is easy to spot in people's lives. Verses 13 to 14, just listen to people talk. Listen to yourself talk sometimes. Listen to your children talk. Your siblings talk. The people you work with talk. And you will hear the depravity of man coming from their mouths. This is what he says. Their throat is an open grave. It's really a grotesque picture. Because uh, what it is, is in, in those days you'd have a tomb and it'd have to be sealed up. You know why they seal it up? To keep the stench of the rotting corpse out. Remember when Jesus showed up at the tomb of Lazarus? He said, roll the stum- take away the, to- the, the seal or the stone. And they said, Lord, he's been dead four days. The stink is going to be tremendous. And God says, and Paul quotes, the throats of human beings are like an open grave because from them proceed words of death or perhaps even speaking about the foulness of the speech of human beings. Uh, one man or one woman in certain career fields, especially, you see this, they try to outdo one another with how foul they can talk. If you've ever been in the military or on a construction site, you know what we're talking about. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Why is it that we can't trust anybody? And that's universal. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States or you go to some other country. You always have to be somewhat careful when you interact with people. Why? Because by their very natures they deceive, and so do we. Can anyone in here say you've never lied? You've never twisted the truth to get yourself out of trouble or make yourself look good? You've never said anything deceitful to other people? Friends, that's your very nature to do it. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to people in his day, he said, you are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning and the father of it. Human beings are deceptive. It's why we can't, we don't trust everything we hear. You'd have to be a 
really less than intelligent being to believe everything you hear. Why? Because people lie. The venom of asps is under their lips, and asp is any dangerous snake that has venom that, what does venom do? It, it's designed to inflict pain and death. Think about words in that way. You know, we, we have a saying, maybe you grew up singing it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Isn't that the most untrue thing you've ever heard? Words hurt, and we know they hurt. You've ever watched two siblings going at it, two people that know each other well, know each other's faults, know each other's failings, know each other's physical flaws, and all of a sudden they get into it and watch the venom fly. They're saying things they know is going to hurt. And afterwards they say, I'm sorry, I didn't what? I didn't mean it. Yes, you did. You meant it. Because by your very nature, this is what's there, always residing. People hurting each other with their mouths. Just listen now, in the world you'll hear it. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The idea of just anger, wrath, bitterness, envy towards one another. Their mouth is just full of it. We hear it all the time. You see what Paul is doing here? He says, all are sinners. All you got to do is just listen to people. You'll hear it. Just listen to yourself. You'll hear it. You'll discover that sin within you, that principle of sin that resides within you. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Huh. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isn't that the most problematic part of when we sin with our words? It's because it reveals something in us we maybe even forgot was there. Have you ever said something to somebody, got done speaking to somebody and you think, I can't believe I just said that. I wish I could go back and I could get that, those words back. Friends, it's because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is speaking. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. See how powerful they are? No wonder James tells us, man, be slow to anger and slow to speak. Watch what comes out of your mouth. This is why Paul will tell believers now, you were in this condition He'll say that in Ephesians 4, 25, but now having put away falsehood, listen, let each one of you now speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Or verse 29 of chapter four, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or chapter four, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see how it's different now for Christians? We live differently now and we even speak differently. How important our words are to reflect what God has done in our heart. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Maybe we need to memorize one or two of these verses so that they will haunt us in our conversations. It will always be in our mind, just as we read earlier, uh, Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The way that works is when you start to say something you shouldn't, 
or you're speaking out of anger or you're lashing out of hurt, all of a sudden this verse will come in. That's what I mean by haunting you. You're like, whoa, okay, I got to stop now. That's the way we do it. And then the sinfulness of man, of course, is revealed in their actions, verses 15 to 17. Just look at the history of humanity. And do you not see this to be true? Their feet are swift to shed blood. I see the swiftness of human beings to be violent and to hurt. You know, I just watched a little news clip before I got here in Philadelphia a few days ago. Seven teenagers, well, one of them was 10, attacked a 73-year-old man with a traffic cone and beat him. He was taken to the hospital and as a result of those injuries, died the next morning. Well, the video is the man running from them and they're chasing him down. They hit him, he gets up and runs again. They, take, they beat him. These are little kids, teenagers. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There are parts of inner cities right now that you, you would be out of your mind to drive down, especially after dark. Why is that happening? But it's not just happening in inner cities, it's happening in the suburbs. It's happening at 4th of July parades. Everywhere in our culture, we see a murderous heart being <coughs> revealed. Maybe in your own mind and heart, I know just the way I was wired pre-Jesus and the way I thought, and I even now can sense the tendency to violence rear up when I would get angry at people. It's there still. In their paths, Paul says, are ruin and misery. That is, what does human beings, wherever they go, any culture, any civilization, anyway, in their wake, what do they leave? Ruin and misery. Pain and sorrow and suffering. We see it everywhere. That's the imprint of human nature. The way of peace they have not known, peace with God and peace with one another. Though their politicians claim to know it, every politician claims to know the way of peace. But they have not known and they do not know it unless they know the gospel of Jesus, which is the only source of true peace. Friends, this is why we look out at the world and we see so much sin. Christian, listen, we never would say, I don't understand why things are so bad. Yes, we do understand why things are so bad. Everyone's under sin. And sin increasingly is running rampant. And Jesus told us, lawlessness will increase. This is the nature of lawlessness. You can bind it so much with human laws and policies. You can keep a little bit of a lid on it for a small amount of time, but eventually sin breaks forth away from those. All you have to do to see the fact that we are totally depraved by nature is to look and listen at everyone around you, including yourself. You'll see enough evidence of depravity that will just push you to the cross over and over again. And he summarizes in verse 18, this is just the main problem, isn't it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the ungodliness of Romans 1.18 that invokes the wrath of God. They don't even take God into account. They don't want him. They don't care about him. They're certainly not going to listen to him. 
every man and woman and child is doing what is right in their own eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Where does this leave us? Look at verses 19 to 20. Here's the crux of it all. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So here it is, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. If this is a courtroom scene, prosecution is done now. Prosecution rests. And now it turns to the defense. Let's hear it. Let's hear your defense. And what does the law leave us with? No defense. Every mouth is stopped. We're accountable to God. We're guilty as charged. There's nothing we can say. We can't respond. We can't argue with this. So what do we do about it? Well, look at verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because what people do is they say, okay, I'm in trouble with God. Here's what I'll do. I'll start doing right. I'll stop doing wrong and I'll start living in God's word and I'll start going to church and I'll start doing right. Is that the path to justification? Is that going to work? Not according to this. By the works of the law, you're only going to find more and more knowledge of your own sin, a very full and real and experiential knowledge of how sinful you are and how you couldn't, if you're being honest with yourself and God, could never hope to make yourself right with him. Well, then what's the good news? The good news is that there is one who came into this world, born, as Paul says in Romans 8, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he himself not being under sin, the likeness of sinful flesh who was righteous, had full spiritual comprehension, sought after God every one of his days, followed God all of his days, glorified God in all things, always did what was good and right. His words were always pure and true and wholesome and edifying. His feet were swift to show mercy and grace. He left in his path nothing but life and peace. He knew the way of peace, and as a matter of fact himself, he said, I am the peace. This one is Jesus Christ the only righteous one. And what we're going to learn next week and start looking at next week in verse 21 is that this righteous one was put on the cross to pay for your sins. In Romans chapter 8, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus for you and me, for all of our failures from Romans 1.18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. All of our sin, even our nature itself, nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ so that it's all been born. We are forgiven. The wrath is removed. We live under grace. And friends, we are then given new hearts and the Spirit of God so that we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We have now spiritual comprehension and insight and wisdom. We are seeking after God. We're turning, turning to God and being used by Him. We're doing good. Our speech is glorifying to God and edifying to others. We're quick to help others and show mercy. We're walking in the ways of peace with God and other believers. We fear God, we worship God, we have a reverence and awe for God. And you can see after studying verse chapter 118 all the way to chapter 320, what a miracle of God's grace that is, is it not? Is that not an example of the power of God unto salvation? 
We need the power of God to change us from what we see in chapter one through three into what we are now have become in Christ and how we can now live for God, right? That's the power of God making us like Jesus Christ in this world. That's the good news. And we'll return and begin next week unpacking and unfolding all of this in the upcoming chapters. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for good news. And even in your wrath, you're remembering mercy. You're saving people. And we in this room are an example of that. We all confess by nature we're children of your wrath. And so we thank you for the grace that has saved us. And we thank you for Jesus. And I pray even now as we celebrate in the Lord's tup, uh, Supper that propitiation for us, that you would fill our hearts with praise and glory to him. We ask this in his name. Amen.